Thank you, Mark. And good evening, everyone. As Mark mentioned, my name is Allie. If I haven't yet had the chance to meet you, I hope to at some point. Um, you'll typically see me around. I tend to do a number of different jobs here. I'm on the door. I help in kids in the morning. I'm sometimes up here giving notices. But this is actually my first time standing here at this point in the service. So I feel like I have a confession to make at this point that um, I do not actually come from Anglican background. I come, I know, I know, I come from Pentecostal background, and so if at any time I say amen or hallelujah, you just feel free to let it out, just give me a preach it, sister, hallelujah, whatever the Spirit is doing, feel free, there's no shame here. You guys are already getting it, way better than the first two services, well done. Um, Not that we're comparing or anything. Um, If you want to turn to um, 2 Corinthians, page 1158 in the Red Bibles, we are continuing in our series in 2 Corinthians this week. And last week we looked at the first section of chapter 1 where Charlie talked us through about God's comfort and the community of God. Remember that calm meant with, so God with us and us with one another. And this week, we're going to build on that idea of community, looking at it from the angle of Paul and his relationship with the Corinthians. Um, We're going to see Paul offer a little bit of tough love to the Corinthian church and see how he reminds us of the truth in the gospel. And if this is your first time here, if you're just looking into Christianity, then I hope that this passage will point out some great promises that point to the Christian faith. Let's read it together, starting in verse 12 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. For we do not write to you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that, as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us, just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I planned to visit you so that you might benefit twice. I planned to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come to you from Macedonia, and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. When I planned this, did I do it lightly? Or did I make my plans in a worldly manner, so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, and no, no? But surely, as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ." And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you, to some extent, but not to put it too severely. 
The punishment inflicted by him on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that you will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there is anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul and the Corinthians, and that as we read about their relationship and as we read this personal letter from Paul to them, that we can glean truth to. Amen. Now, there is a lot happening in this verse. Um, You might recognize some of those verses throughout the passages, maybe even committed them to memory. And before we get to those, those gems, those really great verses that are packed with truth, we need to understand the context of what is happening in the Corinthian church at this time. Now, Paul and the Corinthians have what I would like to call a special relationship. I don't know if this is the same as the U.S. and the U.K. I'm not entirely sure what special relationship means there. But um, I'm going to say it's similar, where they have a long and complex history, a great love for one another, but they've also been through a number of things. So Paul is the one who founded the Corinthian church. So he's their church planter. He is their missions partner. As he travels around and shares the gospel, they are funding him and being his financial support. And he's also their spiritual father or their pastor. Um, so he is the one teaching them. And they have this intimate relationship where they're writing letters and Paul is going to visit. Um, First Corinthians is actually a letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians addressing some of the issues that are being faced in the community at the time. So issues of idolatry, sexual immorality, false teaching, divisions in the church. Paul wrote to them in response to that. He then visited them to check in and see how they were doing. And when he did, this is the painful visit that was mentioned in chapter 2, verse 1, where Paul went and he realized that maybe some of those issues had been dealt with, but on the whole, there was new issues arising. And the main thing was that Paul's gospel, his message was being questioned. There were people in the congregation that were stepping up and saying, is Paul really who he says he is? How do we know that Paul's message is God's message? And they were spreading these little doubts and questions about Paul and his character, and so Paul had to leave quickly, and he decided not to return again. Instead, writing this letter, because he loved them, he wanted to defend himself and the gospel in a way that would benefit them the most. And so this letter is a bit of tough love from Paul to the Corinthians, or as I like to call it, a little come-to-Jesus chat that he was having with his people. Um, I don't know if anyone's ever had one of these before, yeah? All right. I've had a number of them, um, where people tell you things that you probably need to hear, but maybe you don't exactly want to hear them. For instance, um, when I found out that moving to London didn't mean that I would be sitting with the queen having tea at all hours of the night, or how Pop-Tarts, in all of their sugary wonderfulness, are not actually a part of a balanced breakfast, as all of the American nutrition guidelines tell me they are. That's a bummer. Um, And you know who is the absolute best or the most cutthroat of these conversations? Children. I don't know if any of you have kids or if anyone babysits, but the evenings that I babysit, I come away, and sometimes the things these kids say, I mean, they just go straight to the heart. I had a kid one time tell me that they loved me because when they sat on my lap, I was squishy like a pillow. I'm like, I'm sorry. I think that's nice, but no, not at the same time. (laughs) Quinn, I'm sure you know all about those things. Um, crinkles in the forehead. You'll have to have him tell you a few of those stories from his kids. 
<laughs> now, thankfully, Paul is not dealing with issues like that kind or that kind of truth, um, but he is in the middle of having a tough, very honest conversation with his church. And because of this vulnerability, we're really getting to see how Paul is defending himself, but not only that, he's defending the gospel and bringing it back to who God is. Paul reminds the Corinthians, and he reminds us today, that a community of faith is built and it stands on three things, and that's what we're going to look at. One, the faithfulness of God, who God is, two, our identity in Christ, who we are, and three, a call to forgive. So first, the faithfulness of God. This is looking at verses 18 and 20 in chapter 1. One of my absolute favorite things about Paul is his total obsession with Christ. As you read 2 Corinthians, or if you read or reading any of the other things that Paul wrote, keep an eye out for the amount of times he says the phrase, in Christ, by Christ, through Christ, with Christ. I mean, it's amazing. It's what we should all do. But the man has a way of attaching Christ to absolutely everything, even here um, in verses 15 through 17. He's basically going through his diary, you know, telling him where he's going, this, that, or the other. And somehow, Paul even links his travel plans to Jesus and to the message of God. Really is incredible evangelism. Can you imagine if you were turning down a dinner invite and you said, sorry, I can't go anymore, but God will never bail on you, so it's all good, right? He doesn't, he obviously, Paul is not just um, using the Lord and the message to deny an invitation. He's saying that it's so much bigger than whether he's coming or going to the Corinthians. What matters is that these false teachings, that there is truth spoken, that what Paul is speaking is the gospel. And so let's look at it. He says in verse 18, but surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. So why does he do this? Again, because the Corinthians weren't just opposing Paul and his message, they were opposing the gospel. And Paul had to make clear that the gospel was true Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He says that while defending his own character for consistency, Paul also vindicated the consistency and the truthfulness of God. You see, Paul knew something that we all need to know and that the Corinthians needed to be reminded of, that God is faithful. How can the Corinthians trust Paul's message? Because he's speaking on behalf of of Christ, and God's message is faithful. It is true. And what is the proof of that? Well, in that verse, in um, the first part of verse 20, it says that all the answers are yes in Christ. So the proof is in the evidence, which is Jesus. In Christ means Jesus. All of the Old Testament prophecies, many of them were fulfilled through Jesus. And so Paul is telling the Corinthians, you can believe that that God is who he says he is because he's been faithful in the past. Look at Isaiah 53, where he talks about how God will send someone who will be pierced for our transgressions and by his stripes will be healed. That truth, that came about, that was Jesus. And because you can look back and see his faithfulness there and those promises being fulfilled, surely they're fulfilled today and for you. I find this so helpful. I don't know whatever you're facing today, but I know as I look back and there's been different times that I felt I'm questioning what God is doing or feeling uncertain with where I'm going. Um, A few months ago, I was basically stuck in my home country and without a visa, trying to get back to London and wondering what was happening. And it's in these moments that you can look back and see that God was faithful for. You can remember the promises that he told you previously, the promises that are in here that we can stand on. And this verse says you can trust those because God is faithful. That is who he is. And so we can believe the promises he offers us. 
3,000 promises throughout this book. I'm not going to go through all of them, but I will go through some. And their answer in Christ is yes. So what are those promises? He says yes to inseparable love. Yes to rest for the burdened and the weary. Yes, I can give you forgiveness as far as the east is from the west. Yes, there is peace beyond our understanding. Yes, there is salvation for all people. Yes, my grace is sufficient for you. Yes, I can heal your broken heart. Yes, there is freedom from bondage. Yes, I offer life more abundantly. Yes, I am strong when you are weak. Yes, there is eternal life with God that will have no tears and no pain. Yes, 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 my child. That is what God offers you. That is who God is. Now that sounds pretty amazing. What's our part in that? How do we respond? Look at verse 20 again. The amen is spoken by us. This isn't a passive verse. God says yes to us, and we say amen back to him. Amen meaning to confirm, to agree. You see, in order to access God's yes, the yes of Jesus, the ultimate fulfillment of the promise, and then access all of the other ones, we have to say yes. We have to say amen. John Piper calls it the reciprocal yes, which I think is such a good way of putting it. As God says yes, we say yes back to him. Amen? Our God is faithful to his word, and it is that truth that's the foundation. That is what we stand on. Now, after Paul reestablishes this truth on which everything else is built, then he says, all right, now we're going to talk about you and your identity in Christ. Let's look at verse 21 and 22, again in chapter 1. He says, now it is God who makes you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. You see, as believers, we are able to stand firm, not just because of the foundation of who God is. That never changes. But once we say that reciprocal yes, we can stand firm because of who Christ has told us we are, our identity in Christ. What is our identity? Well, your identity is lots of things, and you can read about it all throughout the book, but I'm going to point out three things that this verse tells us in in verse 21. The first is anointed, also meaning set apart or called out. The second is having a seal of ownership on you. This idea was often used by kings where they would seal a letter or seal a law, and they would claim it for who they were, saying that this is my piece of property or this is my statement. And that's what Christ has done, not to make you a slave, but to give you all the freedom to say that I have claimed you and therefore surely he will protect you. Surely you can stand firm in him. So anointed, seal of ownership, and full of his spirit, the Holy Spirit, which is in each of us when we say yes to God. He's described in John as the advocate for us or in Acts as the one who empowers us for witness. So who are you? Well, you're called by God. You're anointed and set apart. You're claimed by a king. And you have the Spirit of God in you. This is the core of our faith. By faith in this identity, we can stand firm. But what's amazing is that it's not just an identity for today, for who we are here and now, but the last part of that verse that says, guaranteeing what is to come. There's a future to it, too. God hasn't just called us for now, but he's called us for a future that we now have a little bit of. What is that future? It's the kingdom of God. The best future that we could ever ask for. Matthew 25, 34 says that the king says to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. 
take your inheritance, the kingdom of God prepared for you since the creation of the world. And so we can identify with Christ. We know that we are his and that he's given us a deposit, a down payment for the future, the kingdom of God that is at hand. We have a bit of that in us now. And Paul reminds the Corinthians when lies are coming at them and when they're divided, he says these two truths you cannot forget. To be a community of faith, first, you're founded on who God is, that he is faithful, and second, who Christ has called you to be. Looking at the glimpse of that future, looking towards the kingdom of God, which is our inheritance. And from here we see the final lesson, which is a bit more challenging than the first two, if I'm honest. Um, It's just as encouraging, but it takes a bit longer to swallow and a bit more to actually do. Um, And that's forgiveness. And I don't stand up here with all of the answers of how to forgive. I know that's something each of us are probably dealing with in a different way. Um, But Paul is talking to the Corinthians about this, and he gives us quite a challenge to follow up with. So let's read it. Um, Chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now the Corinthians face the tough part of this, where Paul calls the whole community together, and he says, guys, here's your call to action. Forgive one another. What's incredible here is that Paul is defending himself, but he's calling for a defense that looks completely different than what the world would tell us to do. You see, in this time of the story, um, the Corinthians, there were a few people that were in support of Paul, and they were going against the teachers that were telling these lies and creating confusion. But in order to defend Paul, what they were doing was trying to excommunicate those teachers and saying, get out of the community, move on. And Paul comes in and he says, no, guys, don't, don't grieve them for me. That's not worth it. You have to forgive them, draw them in and forgive them. And he doesn't just say forgive. It's actually much stronger. If we look at the verses again, verses seven and eight, he urges them to reaffirm their love. And not just forgive, but to comfort. That's going far beyond just saying, I forgive you. But this is what Paul says. He says, if you want to to defend me, forgive. And while, again, I don't have all the answers of how this happens besides through the power of Christ, I do have two reasons why this is a non-negotiable in the Christian faith. If we are to be a community of faith, forgiveness has to be a part of it. And here's why. The first goes back to exactly what Charlie talked about last week, that vertical and horizontal relationship that we have with Christ. So as Christ gives to us, so we give to one another. As Christ comforts us, so we comfort one another. As Christ suffered, so we can suffer with one another. As Christ forgives us, so we forgive one another. That's how it works. What Christ gives us, we must give out. That's part of the Christian faith. That is what characterizes a Christian community. The second reason is found in the final verse of our passage, verse 11, which says, In order that the devil might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Have any of you ever heard of or played the game Red Rover? I think it's maybe called British Bulldog is what I was informed of. Yeah, okay, now you're with me. It took a few services for me to get the British-American translation down, but we've got it. Um, so Red Rover is a game that we used to play in school, and what would happen was you would divide up into two teams, and each team would lock arms and form an unbreakable chain, 
And the idea was, the one team, whose ever turn it was, they would pick someone to send over, basically lunge a small child towards the other small children that are lined up in hopes of breaking through them. Completely barbaric, no safety and health ha- you know, checks at all. I promised the parents in the first service that I wouldn't tell Lauren, so don't take this you know, into your lesson planning or anything. Basically, you're out there, and someone, they choose someone to send over, and the people that they choose are one of two types. The first is this big, like, rugby-type guy, or American football-type guy, who employs the bulldozer technique and just, like, pows straight through with no concern for anyone. He's taking them all hostage. Everyone's a victim to his power. And the other is the scrawny little girl that can weasel her way in between people's legs or under the hands as they please. So they pick the person, and then after they pick the person, they tell them which way to go. They strategize as to where you could break through. So they have a look at the other line, and typically they aim for the ends, because the ends are always the weakest. Why? Well, the ends are filled with scrawny, small, weak, scared little girls. This was my role. Um, This is how I got the nickname Chicken Arms. Because I was always the girl, I know, it's sad, I was always the girl on the end that was terrified of people running at me, which, who wouldn't be? I'm like eight years old, obviously I should be scared, but I'm so weak and frail, and so I had one of two reactions when these people would come charging at me. The first was I would just bolt, peace out, this game is not worth it, yes, I'm competitive, but I don't want to die, or the other option was that I would just like flail, like or fall, like limp, I couldn't do anything with my arms, so I would just crumble to the ground, you know, just in submission, I guess, to the enemy that was coming towards me. It was terrible. I was not good. And so what happened was basically the people on my team, after one or two goes, they would realize that everyone was sending their people towards where I was. And they would bring chicken arms. And they would swoop me up. And they would take me and put me in the middle of them, the two strongest guys. And these strong guys would link arms with me so tightly that it was basically like I wasn't even playing the game anymore. They were just holding me. And so no matter who came at me, I wasn't going to go anywhere. And we wouldn't lose. Now, that is a silly and somewhat mortifying example. If anyone calls me chicken arms after this service, I will not speak to you. No, I'm just kidding. There's grace. We forgive. <laughs> So while that is a silly example, I think it actually is a really good picture of what Paul is talking about here. He's saying that the devil, he's over there, he's scheming. And he, in 1 Peter 5, 8, we read that the devil is praying like a lion, seeking to devour us. So he's over there picking his people, his tactics, what he's going to send, how he's going to try to divide, how he's going to try to break through the chain through our community. And not only that, he's looking, where are the weak spots? Where's chicken arms? Where's the people that are going to fall because they're scared or they're not strong enough? And he's keeping an eye out for that. And that's Paul is saying, let's not be unaware of the schemes of the devil. And so what do we have to do? What's our response to that? It's not kicking those people out. It's not saying, best of luck next time. Get on with it. No, it's saying, bring them into the middle. Bring them in between the strongest people that you have. The people that can hold them when they are weak and say, we've got you. We'll forgive you. We know you messed up, but we've got this. Together, we can fight the enemy. And that is the essence of what Paul is saying. He says, we're one community. We suffer with, we comfort one another, we forgive, we love. This is what it means to be the body of Christ. And not just one body, but one body made up of many parts, each one with an identity in Christ, anointed and called and claimed by a king. 
and all of them standing together, arms linked or arms raised, worshiping a faithful God because they can look back and know who God was then and who God promises to be today. Paul's defense was not about Paul. And to be honest, this life isn't about us. It's about something much bigger than that. It's about a faithful God who Christ has called us to be and how we can be in a community together, sharing with one another. And as we close, I'm not sure where this lands with you today. I know that there was a lot in that. As I, as I kind of worked through this sermon, I felt like the Lord was bringing out all different things to me. And so my hope is that something would have landed with you. And as the worship team comes forward during this next song, would you just open your hearts up and see what the Holy Spirit is saying? Maybe he's pinpointing some, a promise that he's told you before, and he's saying, I am true to that. I say yes to that promise. Still today, the answer is yes for you. Or maybe you're in a time where it feels like you're not quite sure who you are in Christ, forgot that you've been called, and, and God is saying today, don't forget your identity. That makes you stand firm. That's what I have called you to be. Or maybe there's a call to forgive. Maybe there's someone or something that, that the Lord is working in you. And I'd ask you to be open to those things. But most importantly, if there is a call for anyone that hasn't answered that big yes, the reciprocal yes to God, the thing that gives you access to this community of faith, saying yes to who Jesus Christ is, Yes to the sacrifice that he made for you. Yes to the fact that he forgave your sins. If you haven't said that, yes, I pray, I'd like to pray with you that today could be the day for that. So why don't we stand and why don't we sing and take this time to respond together?